The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, Luke chapter 10, grab your Bibles. Get those open in front of you, Luke chapter 10, 25 through uh, 37 is our passage today. And I don't want you, as you're turning there and kind of thinking about what we're going to go after uh, today, I don't want you to let the familiarity of today's passage uh, fool you. Uh, this is a, a hard-hitting message, and um, don't think that you already know where this is going to go. Uh, don't think that you already know Uh, what there is uh, to find in this verse, or that you've heard all there is to hear, and that you're living it out already. Maybe you are. But if you make it through to the end of this message, it it will, at least it should, upset you. And by that I mean it should upset your life. It should turn things upside down for you. It should rattle your cage and shake you to the core of your being. In Luke chapter 10, we have the very familiar story of the Good Samaritan. And even people who don't know the Bible know the story of the Good Samaritan, thinking that it's some kind of message on being a good person, being good to other people. And it isn't. It isn't. The lesson that we're going to unpack is not, I know this is going to be surprising, it's not about loving others and being a good person, but something that's far more important than even that. Some people would elevate that to be the highest good, and it isn't. And what we're going to hear is that all in love for God produces an all in love for for others, and you have to get that. You see how that was stated. An all-in love for God produces all-in love for others, and you have to get it in the right order. If we reverse it, we're in trouble. And so we're going to read the text as we go uh, today. Let me just uh, pray for us, and then we'll start looking at uh, Luke 10. Uh, God, so grateful, grateful again for the grace and the goodness that you um, continue uh, to give us. And uh, what we need right now more than anything else in this moment that we've set aside for this very thing is to hear from you. And God, I pray that you would use your servant as weak as he is. And God, that our minds would be clear, our hearts open, and our wills would bend to your will as we study your word. Father, thank you for the privilege and the blessing that you pour out in our lives. We are a blessed and privileged people for sure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you agree with that prayer? Amen. Amen. All right. All in love for God produces all in love for others. And I need you to know as we look at this that um, your relationship with God hangs in the balance with this passage. 
Your relationship with God hangs in the balance. Let me read the first a few verses here, 25 through uh, 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this, and you shall live. You will live. So, in this uh, passage, uh, the lawyer comes with this question. The question is, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And um, don't miss the first part of verse 25 where it says that the lawyer is coming to test Jesus. He's coming to test him. His motives are not exactly righteous motives. He's really trying to trip Jesus up. At the very least, he's trying to gather information from Jesus that can be used later to build a case against him. And he's mimicking a question that he had heard other inquirers, other seekers ask of Jesus. It's really a question that gets to the heart of Jesus' mission, even though the lawyer's motive wasn't exactly on point. It's still a great question. It gets to the heart of Jesus' mission. It really penetrates to the very heart of the thing we're all wondering about the deepest longing of every human heart. Stated in other ways, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But it's really, how, how do I know I'm going to heaven? How can I be in a relationship with God? How can I be saved by God? Now again, even though the lawyer's motives aren't those of a genuine spiritual seeker, he nevertheless is asking the right question. And whatever is going on in your life in a room this size with this number of people here, I just have to believe you've all brought different things into the, into the room today. You have different things that are concerning you, different burdens that are on your heart. But at the end of the day, the number one most important question that can be answered for you to have as you leave this place is knowing for sure that no matter the circumstances of my life, I'm going to heaven when I die. That I'm with Jesus now and for eternity. I got to get that question settled. And so I'm grateful for the lawyer that he asked that question. And I love what God said. And I need us all to hear that because of whatever's going on in your life. I just love Jeremiah 29, 13. God said this to the exiles to kind of give them hope as they're kind of coming back from exile. But Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, the lawyer doesn't quite qualify for this verse because he's not seeking with all of his heart. His motives are off. But I want to tell you with full assurance uh, and what this verse says, that if you're seeking God with all of your heart right now, if you're coming as a genuine seeker, if you're pursuing God and I want to know the answers and how am I going to live my life and I really do want to know that I'm, 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 I'm with him, then for sure, 100%, if that's you, the Holy Spirit's going to work in your life right now to give you those answers and to give you an assurance of a relationship with him. 
So that's verse 25. That's where we're going with it. And then verse 26. Now I've heard, maybe you've heard this before too. I've heard that lawyers never ask a question in court that they don't know the answer to already. Have you heard that before? How many people have heard that before? Lawyers never ask a question in court that they don't already know the answer to. And this one knows the answer to his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows the answer. He knows the answer. And Jesus says to him, because Jesus loves to do this anyways, he answers the question with a, with a question. And, and he says to the lawyer, because Jesus knows the lawyer knows the answer, he said, and what's written in the law? How do you read it? What's your sense of what the Bible teaches? And so Jesus made him answer the question himself from the recognized source of authority. The lawyer's gonna give an answer from the Torah, what the Jews call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of our Old Testament, what we would call the Pentateuch. Now he's gonna pull out an answer from there. And so the lawyer quotes here, if you're taking notes, the first part of his answer is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and then the second little part at the very end is from Leviticus 19, 18. And the lawyer says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's the Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then this little tag at the end, and your neighbor as yourself... That's Leviticus 19.18. Now that is a great answer. That's actually the perfect, that's the A plus answer. 10 out of 10 uh, for the answer. And we start to think about that and, and, and what kind of love do we need to have uh, for God? It's all stated right here. It's this, notice it, what are, the, what are the words? It's the heart, soul, strength, and mind love. All in love. And uh, some people like to spend a lot of time dissecting each of those. And what does it mean to love God with your mind and with your heart and with your strength? And we could do that for sure. But when you read the verse, you just get a sense. It's like every part of me. There isn't a part that's left out here. I'm going to love God with my body, with my mind, with my soul, with my emotions, with my will. Every part of me is going to be engaged in loving God. There's no possible way I could compartmentalize out any part of who I am and say, that part doesn't need to love God. I'm giving him this part, like every part. It's an all-encompassing, um, I'm all-in a love for God. Every fiber of my being engaged in the love of God. And both, both Jesus and the lawyer get that right. And so he continues on. So it's love God first. We get that part of it. Love God first. And the next part is love others. And we're going to look at that in more depth in just a few minutes. And then Jesus says to him, verse 20, 28, see it there. Do this. Love God. Love others. And what does he say? You shall, you shall live. Remember, that was the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying, do these two things, you're going to live. You're going to have the eternal life that you're actually after. And, but then I look at a phrase like this, and it's so easy to do this. I just look at a phrase like this, and I go, well, is the opposite absolutely true? Do this and live. Don't do this, and you will not live. Is that how you read it? Is that how you read it? You see, it's one, it's one or the other. And there really isn't any middle ground there. 
your relationship with God is hanging in the balance as we look at this passage. You have to get it right or you have no assurance that you're actually alive in Jesus Christ and have eternal life in front of you. Your relationship with God hangs in the balance. So notice this next then. You can't pick and choose whom to love. Because this now becomes the evidence that you really get the loving God part. The lawyer had given Jesus the perfect Sunday school answer. He got it right. But in the lawyer's mind, there's still more that he's thinking about. Again, he's thinking about this little tag. This love your neighbor part. Now look at verse 29. Let's just read this verse. But desiring, but he desiring to justify himself, that's an important phrase, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He was desiring to justify himself with this next question. He's asking so that he can actually limit the scope of those that he has to love. This is actually pretty pretty common at the time. In fact, Jews at the time in the first century would have considered the definition of neighbor to be anyone who is Jewish. Generally speaking, that's how a Jew would see that. So my neighbor is anyone who's Jewish, and anybody who's not Jewish is not my neighbor, and I can like hate them because they're enemies. That was the perception that they have, although there was clear evidence in various passages of the, of the Old Testament that was not the case. But Jews in general would consider other Jews to be their neighbor. But there were certain uh, parties or sects within Judaism that would believe the Essenes, for example, or the Pharisee group would, would believe that there was only certain Jews that fit as a neighbor, and there were even Jews that you could exclude from being neighbors. So they were really trying, again, like this lawyer, they're trying to limit the scope of those that they are compelled to love according to the Scriptures. He's trying to justify his hatred and his ambivalence towards certain people. And of course, does Jesus know this? Does Jesus know that this is his heart? He's come with impure motives. He's coming to test him. Now he's trying to narrow down the scope of it all. Jesus knows this. He knows it's specifically about this man, but he's the God of the universe. He knows it generally about us, that we have a tendency to want to actually do this. And so Jesus, knowing this, he tells the story of the Samaritan. Let me read this now, verses 30 through 35. The man asked, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
Now, we read that and we get it. Oh, the Samaritan, he was so nice to this man beaten by the side of the road. It's great that this Samaritan did this, but we absolutely miss the point of the story if we don't understand the deep historical hatreds that existed between Jews and Samaritans. If we don't understand that, we don't understand how stinging this was for the lawyer to hear Jesus say how insulting it would have been to him, how much of a, of a cut it was to him that Jesus would use the Samaritan as an example. We have to understand that Jews, like this lawyer, I mean, the words aren't even adequate. He hated, loathed, despised the Samaritans. They treated the Samaritans with the highest levels of contempt. And I, I don't know what kind of examples we could use, but if we think about um, in, in our more recent history, the last few hundred years, you could think about blacks and whites in the U.S. South. Um, you could think of any number in the last couple of decades of ethnic cleansing stories that we've heard from around the world where people are slaughtered in places like the Balkans and, and um, Rwanda where people were just slaughtered because they were part of a certain people group and the hatred between the two people groups caused that to happen. That's the best example we can come up with but that was the situation between Samaritans and Jews. The Samaritans... Um, were half-breed Jews, and that was really part of the problem. After the reign of Solomon, which had been such a glorious reign, really the apex of Israel's history, Solomon's uh, son blew it badly, followed bad counsel, and that resulted in the severing, the splitting of the kingdom into north and south. Solomon's son retained control of the south and it maintained a reasonable amount of faithfulness to God, but the northern kingdom was divided out and from the beginning was following after false gods and disobeying the true, the one true God. As punishment for that in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, the superpower of the day, invaded the northern kingdom, carried away the best of the people into exile, and many Assyrians then moved down into the region of the northern kingdom, settled in that area, and what happened was the Jews who were left there and the Assyrians who had moved there began to intermingle, intermarry, and have children together, and that produced this race of people known as the Samaritans. Their worship of Yahweh became distorted and the Jews had no time for them and it was so bad the Samaria sat in between in the geography of Israel. It sits in between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south and when Jews wanted to travel from one place to the other even though the fastest route was through Samaria they would go far out of their way to the east or the west to avoid going through Samaria. So deep was the hatred that in John chapter 8 when the religious leaders are looking for a way to deeply offend Jesus and insult him, the best insult that they can come up with is, surely this man is a Samaritan and demon-possessed. And they would have seen those two things as being equal. They hated them. By using a Samaritan as the hero of the story, 
someone who loved others, he's being intentionally provocative. It's like the sleeping dog is right there and he's poking the dog. He's stirring the pot. He's creating controversy. He's going for the shock value so that no one misses his message. The Samaritan is the hero of the story. And yet someone like the lawyer, he's looking at this story. Who's he identifying with? He's a lawyer. He's an interpreter of the law. He works closely with the priests and the Levites. The priests were commissioned by God to help the people in their worship, to receive the sacrifices, to, to, uh, to serve in the temple, and to help bring people closer to God. The Levites were non-priests who were part of the tribe of Levi and were like the assistants to the priests. They ran the operations of the temple. And together those three, the lawyers and the, and the Levites and the priests were the ones charged with holding the nation together and reverencing and worshiping their God. So lawyers can identify with the priest and the Levite and they're the antagonists in the story. They, like the lawyer, this, this priest and this, this Levite, they had an idea that they were exempt from loving certain people. But the point we're trying to make here is that you can't pick and choose whom to love. Do you think you do that? Do you think you pick and choose whom you're going to love. And we're being awful hard on the lawyer. It's easy to be hard on lawyers. We're being hard on him. But are we really any better? Isn't, isn't it true that the account of the Good Samaritan is here so it'll catch our attention? Not so that we can point at someone else and say, yeah, that guy was really bad. This is for us. We're meant to look at this and ask the question, am I the lawyer? Do I pick and choose? One thing about it. Who's on your list? Who are the people that, that you would look at in your life who you interact with on any given week? Who are the people on your list that, that would be unlovables? This person is not my neighbor. When you're asking the question, who's my neighbor, you're intending to exclude them. I sure hope they're not my neighbor because I don't love them. I don't want to love them. Let's have a little fun. Do I have a little fun? You say, that's the first word that comes to mind when I'm thinking of this message. Let's build a list. So I... I Built a little list here. I got some help from uh, my focus group. We'll call this the unlovables list, asking the question, who is my neighbor, with the intent, like the lawyer, to limit who I have to love. You just put a mental check mark. There's going to be little boxes beside each one of them. I'm not saying that this is an exhaustive list, but there's a little box there. You can just put a little mental check mark. That person, I don't want to love that person. I find it hard to love that person. I'm hoping they're not somebody I have to love. All right, so let's start here with this one. Uh, In-laws, family, 
This was awkward because last night at, at the service, my in-laws were here. <laughs> so that was tough. They're not on my list. But you know, you know that, um, you know that sister-in-law you just can't get along with? Your husband's parents? The brother-in-law who's just a jerk at every barbecue? Is that my neighbor? Do I have to love them? How about my neighbor with the yappy dog, the dandelions, or the loud music? I spend so much time on my lawn. Do I have to love that person? Every neighborhood's got that guy, true or false. Every neighborhood's got that guy. Um, homeless person. Are homeless people my neighbor? Do I have to love them? I mean, the last time I went to a, a bang machine here in town, right here in town, and I had to walk around two homeless people who were sleeping in the vestibule of the bank in order to get to the bank machine. So what's my attitude when I have to do that? Am I upset that I have to do that? I wish they weren't there. What is their problem? Why are they here? This is a bank. No, they're just tired. Just trying to get some sleep in a safe place. A part of my focus group was my staff. I'm not sure if they came up with this one, my jerk of a boss. <laughs> or my coworker who does nothing. Um, I'm, you know, in our workplaces, there's, just, there's people who are not easy to love. Do I have to love everyone in my workplace? Or some people have it really out for rich people. They just can't stand rich people. Or the opposite end of the spectrum, they can't stand people who are on social assistance, people who are poor. I work hard for my money. I pay my taxes. That person's on the dole. Why don't they go get a job? And we don't even know their circumstances. And we resent the, the, the very social assistance that we as Canadians kind of take some pride in that we're going to have each other's back and then we make such a big deal of it. My focus group definitely came up with this one, skinny people who can eat anything. <laughs> um, Americans and their politics, not, it's crazy, right? It's, it's a, it's a sideshow. Um, but I'm not sure why we're picking on Americans or, like, do we love people who have different political views than us? I think is the point of that. Like someone who's like so far over on the other side of the spectrum, can we still love them? How about this one? Any, any non, this is for the white people, any non-white person. How are you doing with that? You know, I mean, we live in the 21st century and apparently we're eradicating racism, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Or, or maybe you are a person of color and the person you have a hard time loving is uh, white, white people. Or maybe you have a really good reason, you think it's a really good reason, but something happened to you in your past and, and you just can't love men at all. Or maybe you can't love feminists 
or you have no time for old people or children or teenagers or tech support. telemarketers and anyone who calls you on the phone is like seriously why are you calling me even people I like when they call me on the phone I'm like why are you calling me text me okay. and don't ever leave a voice message ever for me it's probably never going to be heard vegans Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> uh, or the guy who wants to check your hot water heater or aerate your lawn or, or seal your driveway, like those guys. Pretty much anybody who shows up to ring your doorbell who doesn't have baked goods in their hands, okay? It's, it's, tough. it's, it's tough to love. Or maybe it's a, the generations thing, and we, we can struggle here that we just, you know, we, have, we don't like the boomers, or we don't like Gen X, or we don't like the millennials. Why aren't they working, and they have no direction in life, and they're just free riding it off of everyone else? And all that generational stuff going on, or it gets a lot more personal now. Maybe uh, the person who's on your list that you're going to have to check off the box is your ex. or Muslims, or gays and lesbians, or transgendered people, or fill in the blank, maybe, a, maybe I missed yours. Who's on your list? How many check marks do you have in the boxes? You're trying to limit the scope of who you have to love by narrowly defining who your neighbor is. I'm really no better than the lawyer. So let's take that now and let's go back to the text to a few verses we read here. Let's, let's play around with it a, a little bit, some of the wording. Back to verse 30 to 33. A man was going down from Barrie to Toronto. And he fell among robbers. Now by chance, a harvest elder was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a small group leader, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Muslim man, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. But a gay man, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. A homeless man, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Did you get the point? See, is that so impossible to imagine that that could happen? That's the point that Jesus is making. 
The Apostle John wrote it this way in 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love, anyone who does not stop to help the beaten man does not know God because God is love. If there's anyone on your list, there's work to do, and it's serious work because so much hangs in the balance. We can't pick and choose whom to love. Our relationship with God hangs in the balance. Therefore, look at this last part now, we must show mercy to all. You have to notice here that Jesus corrects the question. It's subtle, and if you just read it quickly, you're going to miss it. But Jesus actually corrects the question that the man had asked, the lawyer had asked back in verse 29. He says, who is my neighbor? But then Jesus' answer is interesting. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, proved to be a neighbor? The lawyer's asking, who is my neighbor? Now Jesus is saying, it's not actually about who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the lawyer is forced to answer his own question. But Jesus, having turned the question around, you know, who was the one who was a neighbor? Now, it's interesting. The lawyer is forced to answer it. He says this in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. Now, it's interesting that he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can't even say the word. The hatred is so deep. So he just says the one who. But the point's been made, and he knows it. Nobody's getting away with anything here. If anyone had the right, the prerogative to walk by on the other side, it's the Samaritan. If you didn't pick it up in this story, the man who's laying beaten by the side of the road is assumed to be a Jewish man. It's the only way the story makes sense. The Samaritan could have looked at this Jewish man and said, they hate me, they hate us, they do nothing but treat us with contempt. I'm not stopping. And everyone went, that's fine, we expect that, that's okay. You go ahead on your way and somebody else will come along and care for this Jewish man who's laying there. But he didn't. He stops and, and again, look back to verses 34 and 35. He doesn't just help. It's not just like he stops. Hey, buddy, are you okay? Hey, let me help you up a little bit here. Here, have a little drink out of my, my canteen, and I'll just kind of get you set for a minute, and then maybe somebody else will come along that can take you to a place where you can get some help. I really got to get on my way. But, you know, he stopped, and we would all say, hey, that was good. Look, he, he showed him a little love. He, he doesn't do that. He went to him. He, he actually took the time to bind up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on it to keep the wounds soft so they could heal better, disinfect what was going on there. And then he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him, literally becomes a nurse to this man. The next day, he took out some of his own money, two denarii, enough to cover the expenses for him to stay there a couple of nights at least and to be cared for by the innkeeper. 
And then the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, whatever more you spend, he just leaves it wide open. He doesn't says, hey, look, you know, up to this point, he says, whatever you spend, when I come back next time, I'll pay that back to you. I mean, he goes over the top in his expression of love. This isn't some like little token, yeah, I love you, a little token of love. Here's a little thing. Poured himself out. And if a hated enemy can demonstrate genuine love for others as this man did, then how is it that you and I as Christ followers struggle to do the same? You see, what keeps us from this are the same things that kept the priest and the Levite from helping. I just thought through some of the obstacles to all-in love for others. What are the things that keep us from really doing this? for people that need to be loved in Jesus' name. Six obstacles, um, self-importance, this is beneath me. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Why would I stop to help that person? I mean, this Samaritan man, he was a man of some wealth. I would guess he was traveling maybe on business from one place to another when this happened. He could have said, like, I'm a pretty important guy. I, I shouldn't have to stop to help this Jewish man. This sense of self-importance that there is somebody somewhere in the world that's beneath me. Oh, there isn't. And none of us is anything apart from the grace of God, correct? Self-importance or self-centeredness. This is going to take too much of my time. I'm about me. My time's pretty precious. You know, I got things to do. I got places to be. Or fear. It's too dangerous. Now, this was a well-known route between Jerusalem and Jericho and bandits. I was even reading one, um, uh, one commentary on this that said that bandits in this area continued on into the 20th century on this very same road. It's a really dangerous route. And so you could imagine that this beaten man is there. He's half dead. The Samaritan's going to come over and, and, uh, and help him. How vulnerable do you think he is to more robbers being kind of behind the rocks ready to pounce on him? He's got a money bag. He's got an animal. He's got things with him. I mean, it's risky to stop and help this guy. Not to mention that the laws of the time meant that if he put this guy on his animal and began to carry him to town and he died along the way, that by the time he got to town, that man's family would be making a claim against the Samaritan. I mean, this guy's risking a lot. And he's not fearful, it seems, of any of that. It's not too dangerous for him. Agreed. This is too costly. Are you serious? Like, I, I might have to go out of pocket to love someone? Does that sound right? You see, it's an obstacle. I don't want to have to pay for it. Or apathy. It's not my problem. Someone else will do it. That's an obstacle for sure. Or insecurity. It's too hard for me. I just don't think I could do it. And so we don't bring anything to the table. We don't try So we have all these obstacles to loving others. I think some of us would recognize, yeah, those are kind of some of the things that are going in on in my life, and those are the obstacles that are keeping me from loving others. So how could I overcome those? 
Well, if you go back to the beginning of the discussion and the original question the lawyer asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The right answer was to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with an all-in love. And that's actually, listen, that's the answer to overcoming the obstacles. The more I love God, with an all-in love, the more these things become insignificant. The more I pour myself into the worship of God, the service of God, the knowledge of God, the less self-important I feel, the less less self-centered I am, the less fear I experience, the less I'm greedy and the more I'm generous, the less insecure I am and the stronger I feel because I'm spending time with God and He's filling me with these things by the power of His Holy Spirit. The answer to overcoming the obstacles to loving others is the starting point. Love God with an all-in love. And that all-in love for God produces all-in love for others. Your relationship with God hangs in the balance. So you can't pick and choose whom to love, but must show mercy to all. Now, when you stop to think about who's having this conversation who's speaking with the lawyer, you realize that he's not spouting platitudes or talking about theoretical ways to love. The one talking to the lawyer is the one who knows love perfectly, who modeled love perfectly, who embodies love. And the Scriptures tell us God is love, so He is love. And for our part then, it really comes down to this. Again, from 1 John, the apostle says this in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Remember I said the order was so important. This verse helps us. We love because he first loved us. If you look at the Good Samaritan and it becomes all about being nice to other people, being good to them, and being a good person ourselves, then we're getting the cart before the horse and we fall into this trap of believing that our good works are the thing that saves us. But we love because he first loved us. In other words, we can't love enough to ever earn our salvation. We can't give ourselves enough to love others and somehow get God's attention. It has to start with loving God. We love because he first loved us. He puts the love in us. He increases the capacity that we have to actually love others. how did he love you? He first loved us. What did that look like? Well, it looked like him stopping by the side of the road when you were laying there beaten. When no one else stopped, he stopped. And he bound your wounds. And he poured oil and wine into those wounds. He carried you himself to a place of healing. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. So the right way to end this message, to reflect and respond to it, is for us to focus squarely on what Jesus Christ did for us. The only way we're going to love others if we think, is, is if we think about how he loved us. To thank him for the cross, to thank him for giving his life for us. And then to spend our lives following him, learning from him, adoring him, serving him, loving Jesus Christ, and loving others in the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.